you should hear it. Incidentally, you're about to hear a government... Where, uh, this is really something else. Now, would anybody in our government do this? No way. But the gentleman you're about to hear, Nick Pope, from Great Britain, has worked for the Ministry of Defense since 1985. And he's going to come on the air with us. And he's going to talk about UFOs. He's going to talk about open skies, closed minds, and the uninvited. Actually, the author of his book. But for somebody to be able to come on from the government, particularly in Great Britain, is shocking to me. And I'll tell you more about him in a moment. Uh, with the Kennedy tragedy, uh, somebody sent me this, and I thought it worth reading to you. The sky is overcast and the visibility poor. The reported five-mile visibility looks more like two, and you can't judge the height of the overcast. Your altimeter says you are at 1,500 feet, but the map tells you there's local terrain as high as 1,200 feet. There might even be a tower nearby because you're not sure just how far off course you might be, but you've flown into worse weather than this, so you press on. You find yourself unconsciously easing back just a bit on the controls to clear those none-too-imaginary towers. With no warning whatsoever, you're in the soup. You peer so hard into the milky white mist that your eyes hurt. You fight the feeling in your stomach. You swallow only to find your mouth dry. Now you realize you should have waited for better weather. The appointment was important, but not that important. Somewhere, a voice is saying, You've had it. It's over. Now, you have 178 seconds to live. Your aircraft feels on an even keel, but your compass turns slowly. You push a little rudder, add a little pressure on the original position. This feels better, but your compass is now turning a little faster and your airspeed is increasing slightly. So you scan your instrument panel for help. But what you see looks somewhat unfamiliar. You're sure... You're sure this is just a bad spot. You'll break out uh, in just a few minutes, but... You don't have several minutes left. You now have 100 seconds to live. So you glance at your altimeter, and you're shocked to see it unwinding. You're already down 1,200 feet. Instinctively, you pull back on the controls, but the altimeter still unwinds. The engine is in the red, the airspeed nearly so. Now you have 45 seconds to live. You're sweating and shaking. There must be something wrong with the controls. Pulling back only moves that airspeed indicator further into the red. You can hear the wind tearing at the aircraft now. You have 10 seconds to live. Suddenly you see the ground. The trees rush up at you. You can see the horizon if you turn your head far enough, but... It's at an unusual angle. You're almost inverted. You open your mouth to scream. You have no seconds left. The author of that, uh, by the way, is unknown. I imagine that uh, caused a bead of sweat or two on the brow of some pilots out there. So, 
We're about to go to Great Britain, and we're going to speak with a government employee whose name is Nick Pope. It's an unusual opportunity. Just got back from Taiwan and China, and this is interesting. I was talking to him a little earlier. This just cleared the wires. Uh, the U.S. 7th Fleet is now monitoring the Taiwan Strait as special envoys meet in Beijing to persuade officials to avoid military means to solve the unification issue. And for the second uh, consecutive, uh, consecutive day, uh, President Bill Clinton warned the mainland against using force, while at the same time the president uh, has stated uh, he does support the one-China policy. So, I don't know, you better watch that area very carefully. I smell trouble there. Now, Nick Pope is a controversial figure whose outspoken views on UFOs, alien abductions, uh, have been discussed in national newspapers, led to questions being asked in Parliament. His endorsement of an extraterrestrial explanation led to conflict with others at the, uh, at the department. I can imagine that. He has worked for the Ministry of Defense since 1985, and his postings have included a tour of duty in the Joint Operations Center during the Gulf War, he holds the rank of higher executive officer, which equates uh, roughly to that for us uh, of a major in the Army. Uh, through his work on UFOs, alien abductions and such, Nick got drawn into looking at crop circles, animal mutilations, and a range of other paranormal phenomena. This resulted in him being likened to the character of Fox Mulder, of course, in The X-Files. He has written a book called Open Skies, Closed Minds, which reached number three in the Sunday Times hardback nonfiction list and stayed, in fact, in the top ten for ten weeks. The Uninvited, also uh, another and a bestseller. He has written a techno-thriller with an alien theme entitled Operation Thunderchild, which is going to be published in October of 99 by Simon & Schuster, UK. Uh, Simon & Schuster. He's done many, many uh, radio and television interviews. And here from the United Kingdom is Nick Pope. Nick, welcome to the program. Thanks. Uh, gee, where to begin? First of all, I didn't think that any government official there or here was allowed to talk about this sort of thing. It, it is very difficult for me to speak out on these sorts of issues. What actually helped me in a kind of perverse way was the fact that after the Persian Gulf War, all the generals had written their memoirs using official information and uh, talking about their involvement in the war. So I came in after that, and I thought, well, if these generals can write about their experiences, I'm going to write about mine, because I think mm. that the UFO and abduction research that I did at the ministry uh, would be interesting to people, and I was right. Interesting, is to put it mildly, but it, now here, help me if I'm wrong here, but I always thought, here in America we have this um, all-encompassing or nearly all-encompassing First Amendment that allows people to speak out on things. In Great Britain, uh, the national government actually can and does at times censor information uh, exercising what, what we call prior restraint here in the United States, not allowing certain things to be broadcast. Can you speak on that? 
Yes, um, we do have a fairly draconian piece of legislation called the Official Secrets Act here, yes. um, which, which does make this sort of thing difficult. But there is a fundamental change, and has been for several years. Uh, there is a philosophy of open government uh, that has been with us for, say, the last four or five years, and indeed uh, proposals for a historic British Freedom of Information Act have now been published, and we should have that uh, in a year or two's time. Okay, so you were, you, things you, are going the right way. Yes, you work for the Ministry of Defense, which is the same thing, really, as working for the de Defense Department here in the U.S., isn't it? That's right. Um, so, it's unimaginable to me that they would let you speak out on things like this unless, I'm going to say what the audience would say, Okay. unless you were uh, sort of towing the line for them, as it were. Well... I'll be honest with you, what I had to do to stay the right side of the line yes. is let the department see a copy of my manuscripts before I published. Um, uh -huh. Now, that's not to say that what came out the other side uh, should be regarded as approved by the government, but it gave them the chance to take out anything that I had put in inadvertently that, that was, say, classified, uh, and make one or two other changes. But I must say that, you, you know, this was very minor changes. They did not um, tamper with the overall uh, thesis so that I was on, putting on, forward. I, I take it that on occasion you have had uh, sentences or paragraphs um, uh, deleted, thank you very much. That, that's right, yes, and I'm quite happy. I would rather pay that price and have some information come out uh, than have the whole thing stopped. Although I would say to you that uh, right at the beginning, when I first announced my intention to do this um, and first gave them the manuscript, I received a letter which said, your book is totally unacceptable to the Ministry of Defence mm. and quite beyond any suitable amendment. But following that, there was a lot of politics, a lot of talking, a lot of arguing, and uh, life got pretty interesting for me. But uh, I, I just dug my heels in, and I said... Was that, was, uh, was, Nick, was that open skies, closed minds, and the uninvited? Yes. Okay, um, well, I, I take it then that... Uh, um, open skies part was all right. The uninvited was speculative, and probably the people who said your book was uh, totally unacceptable would have been the closed minds. That, that's right, yes. I mean, in, in the title, the closed minds referred to people who, even when you showed them uh, what I considered to be really good evidence of extraterrestrial craft, things that could do things we couldn't even come close to. Mm. Uh, these people just put their head in the sands and said, it must be a weather balloon, it must be a hoax, y you know, you must have made a mistake. Gee, that sounds just like our Air Force. <laughs> exactly like our Air Force. Well, although the interesting thing is that in Britain... Our Air Force here, the Royal Air Force, is, is actually, I think, a very positive force. And um, many of the people that I've spoken to uh, in the Air Force here actually believe in UFOs, but uh, don't 
really feel too comfortable about coming out and saying so. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, the main reason, and I'm sure that this is the case in the States uh, as much as it is here, is many Air Force people have had sightings themselves. Oh, yes. But uh, because of fear of ridicule, because they worry that their careers might suffer, they tend not to say anything. I had a lot of people talk to me just, um, you know, in the margins. We would be going to a a course or something and someone would take me aside and say look Nick when I was flying my jet you know back in 1980 whatever I, I had the most amazing sighting uh, Nick uh, what part of Great Britain are you in I'm in London you're in London all right uh, we've got lots of time all the time we need and all the time you can spare to do this I've got a million questions for you so hang tough we're at the bottom of the hour already Nick Pope is my guest. He actually works in the Ministry of Defense and has worked there since 1985, which is, uh, you know, like working in our Defense Department. And can you imagine a Defense Department employee coming on my program to talk about unidentified aircraft, many, many of them violating our airspace in what might be called an invasion? Not real likely. So we've got a real prize here. I'm Art Bell, and this is Coast to Coast AM. Is coming to us from London, England, Great Britain. He is in the Ministry of Defense, where he's been since 1985, and he speaks out on issues that you wouldn't imagine he could speak out on there, but he does. So, Nick, I'm going to start off with a real tough one. Okay. Um... We have had a lot of reports here, Nick, of gigantic craft, I mean really big craft, that have been seen by commercial airliners and others traversing the Atlantic Ocean, uh, generally from Europe, from, from where you are, roughly, to uh, North America. And we've had report after report after report of this, uh, I think even something that uh, NATO uh, reported on. What, what do you know about this, if anything? Well, I, I certainly have lots of cases, um, both officially and now privately, mm. involving pilots seeing UFOs. Yeah. And uh, our civil aviation authority here uh, has cases of uh, near misses being reported between these, these sorts of objects. And I'm sure you're aware of the uh, uh, not near misses that occurred in Mexico where actually a couple of collisions occurred to commercial aircraft. Yes, that's right. And uh, But again, though, I think we have chronic under-reporting of this. Mm -hmm. For every pilot who speaks out and uh, goes official, I think there are at least ten, and I say that with, with some experience because I've, I've sat in this job doing it, uh, ten who don't report at all. Uh, and that worries me because irrespective of what you believe on UFOs, there is a flight safety uh, issue here. And I just hope we, we don't have a, a massive tragedy to bring this home to people. Well, one might even wonder whether we might already have had a massive tragedy. And uh, uh, there's an awful lot of uh, air crashes out there that despite the best investigation of the NTSB here or your counterpart there are never really quite solved. That's right, and, and I guess, of course, there are one or two uh, more historic UFO cases like Thomas Mantell and Frederick Valentich, um, 
which you know continue to uh, perplex people and make people uh, slightly anxious about what's going on in our skies. Now you know uh, it might be useful if you would relate that one to us. I, I don't, it's not familiar to me. Well, the, the Frederick Valentich case, uh, a very interesting one, where uh, a light aircraft pilot was flying across the Tasman Strait between uh, Australia and Tasmania, mm -hmm. and. He reported having seen an object, uh, this, this was back in 1978, by the way, he reported uh, that an object was um, kind of buzzing his plane, and his last message to air traffic control, he, he was actually on the radio um, trying to get some help, uh, and, and this is a direct quote, he said, my intentions are to go to King Island, Melbourne, he said, that strange aircraft is hovering on top of me again. It's hovering, and it's not an aircraft. Now, that was the last transmission. The aircraft and the pilot were never found. Wow. So, you know, cases like this are not as widely known as they should be. I mean, a lot of ufologists, you know, will have a passing familiarity with them. But if you go out to the public and say, what if I were to tell you that uh, a UFO had been directly responsible for the loss of an aircraft and death of a pilot? Mm -hmm. You know, the public would think you were making it up, and, and yet it's not. The air traffic control report is there. This is all on the record. Uh, in America, Nick, uh, the U.S. Air Force conducted its great project Blue Book, uh, at the end of which they said whatever these things are, they are not a threat to national security, as if to have the final word said on the whole thing, not a threat to national security. And yet, in this country, Nick, we have reports of UFOs that ho have hovered above ICBM uh, hardened installations. We have reports uh, of ICBM uh, sites that have gone offline with UFOs hovering above them. The Russians have had reports of ICBM sites beginning their own countdown uh, that aired here on national television and, and I've always thought Nick if that is not a matter of national in fact international uh, security then what is well I, I totally agree with you I mean I, I think you know let's let's not beat around the bush I mean Blue Book was you know a, a pretty much a whitewash and the American government's decision to get out of the UFO game, if they did, was, was pretty perverse, given that over 20% of the Blue Book cases were unexplainable. And I'm not talking about cases where there was insufficient data. But yeah, we, we have near misses between UFOs and aircraft, um, some of which are military aircraft. We here have cases involving UFOs hovering over power stations and, and even uh, nuclear installations on on, on occasion, right. yeah, I think that this is an issue of extreme defense significance. And, you know, that is fundamentally the reason why I wrote the book. And, yes, I was taking a chance in doing it, mm. um, but I felt that it was just too important to sit back and do nothing when well, these things are going on. Well, again, since you work for the Ministry of Defense, without giving me specifics about the things that you cannot talk about, um, how many cases... Uh, or incidences have occurred that percentage-wise, Nick, that you would not be able to tell me about right now? Well, I could pretty much tell you about most of the cases, um, although some in fairly sanitized form. 
What I can say to you is that when I was doing the UFO job for the government, I investigated about 300 cases a year. And of those cases, I reckon about 10%, mm. so, so maybe 30 cases a year, gave me serious cause for concern, made me think we were dealing with structured craft capable of speeds and maneuverabilities that uh, we simply could not match. Mm. Um, when you were tasked with the job, were you given any instruction with regard to the desired outcome of your investigations to come? I wasn't given anything specific, but I think there was a, a kind of culture, um, a, a kind of general perception that this was a subject that it didn't do to look into too closely. It was regarded either, either as a nuisance or as something where once you started digging, who knows where it will end. So I'm not telling you that I was ever warned off or discouraged or, or anything like that. But I think it was kind of accepted that, uh, you know, whoever did that job was just supposed to kind of not rock the boat. All right. Well, I want to I, I just go off, uh, off um, to the right here for a second and ask you a question that you might not be able to answer. But you were, you had a tour of duty uh, in the Joint Operations Center during the Gulf War. Yes. And a pretty significant one. Uh, in America, we have a, a great controversy raging, uh, Nick, about our GIs who came back and are complaining of various uh, and sundry ailments called the Gulf War Syndrome. And I wonder if there is a similar thing going on in Great Britain, and if so, what you know about it. There is indeed a, a similar controversy, but I'm afraid that's not, that's not something on which I can comment. It's, it's nothing. I have not done any official uh, research or investigation into that, so I, I'm afraid I'm, I'm going to have to pass up that one. Okay. Uh, the perils of working for the government, I'm afraid. No, no, no. I, I understand, and, uh, and sometimes it is as important to get a no comment as it is to get one. Now, coming back to... Um, uh, to ufology for a moment uh, there's more than just things in our skies uh, I understand though we're not getting any publicity about it or very little here uh, with regard to this year's crop circle formation it's quite astounding uh, there in Great Britain in Europe generally and we're, we're not hearing about it over here I think Particularly, I mean, I can only speak for the British media, but the British media are still totally hung up on the Doug and Dave fiasco. Really? And there is a, there's a perception that it's all a hoax. Yes, but it, it hasn't Doug or Dave or one of them died? Uh, yeah, I, I forget which one. I've, I've been um, kind of out of the crop circle business for a while. I mean, I've, I've been concentrating more on abduction research of late. But, all right. um yeah, um, I mean, of course, it, it was inconceivable that Doug and Dave and even their imitators were ever responsible for all these these patterns. But the, the media can can sometimes be very one-dimensional on this, oh boy. and um, it just got sucked into the whole idea that because Doug and Dave uh, fooled a few people, they they must be responsible for everything, which is clearly nonsense. Actually impossible. I've seen the size and complexity of some of the crop circles. And well, I've, 
I've I've stood in some myself. Um, I, I stood in um, the double helix formation in Alton Barnes, and I, I stood in the famous uh, uh, formation at, at Stonehenge uh, as well. And I, in fact, I was one of the first people in in that while it was uh, still very fresh before people had started trampling it down. And yeah, they are awesome. Well, you know, here we have Dr. Levengood who does um, very serious research on the molecular changes that occur in, quote, real, end quote, crop circles. And there are, in fact, actual molecular changes that would seem to be mimicked by, but not quite an effect that would produce uh, be produced by microwave radiation. Uh, is, that, is that what you generally think there? I, I don't know on this. I've heard speculation even um, that uh, the government could be responsible for some of these with, by testing some sort of projected energy weapon. I mean, it depends well, which you, theory you listen to. You'd be a very good person to ask about that. No, I, I can tell you on <laughs> that that <laughs> that's not the solution because if the government had something like that, you yes. can bet that the one place they wouldn't test it is, is, is in public. When... The, the Ministry of Defense, and I'm sure in, in America the Defense Department, has acres of its own land. You know, we would do this sort of stuff behind closed doors. So I think, as far as I'm concerned, I can eliminate that theory. Uh, so we do not have projected energy weapons in orbit? Is that, well, is that a that's... definitive statement on your part? or No, it's um, my, my statement was that I do not believe a projected energy weapon could be tested, or would be tested rather, um, by making a pattern on a crop field. I'm not saying that we don't have these things and it's very interesting looking at some of the things going on at White Sands at the moment mm. um, that, that uh, there are various um, uh, anti-ballistic missile systems, both uh, both missiles and indeed uh, lasers being tested. Nick, have you ever seen the controversial footage from uh, STS-80, the shuttle flight STS-80? Yes, I have. Um, it, did you notice that a moment when the shuttle camera obviously and intentionally zoomed in on a specific area and waited? Obviously waited and then something that must have been some sort of projected energy weapon or possibly a craft at incredible speeds obviously left the earth you saw that didn't you yes i did yes what do you think that was nick well the honest answer is i don't know i think i can tell you what it isn't i'm convinced that it's not ice crystals falling off the, the <laughs> <shuffle>. <laughs> no, no, no. wasn't ice crystals no, no. <laughs> nor was it a weather balloon nor was it swamp gas <laughs> <laughs> when i saw that um actually i i can tell you that i had in my house um some time ago without naming who it is and i i can't Somebody who worked on the initial um, SDI uh, project uh, here in America. And I sat this person down and I let them see that portion of the SDS-80 video. And uh, this person said, oh, my God, I know what that is. I worked on that. And what did he say? What did he say it was? Uh, the person said it was a... a, a a directed energy beam. Right. I mean, that's 
that's interesting. I mean, of course, you know, we we know that there are various kinetic energy anti-satellite uh, laser systems being tested. So, so maybe that's what it is. I've seen some people who say, "Oh my God, we've declared war on the UFOs, and we were trying to shoot a UFO down." Now, I very much doubt that that's the case. But um, yeah, I'm sure we've got all sorts of exotic hardware that we were maybe testing ourselves. I've got a man named David Jacobs uh, coming on the air with me next week. I've invited him back. He wrote a book, uh, Nick, called The Threat. And the contention is that when you look at what these visitors, if we can call them that, uh, the craft, the abductions, all the rest of it, what they have done, these are not friends of ours. These are not... Um, beings who are uh, well intended uh, toward us I would have to agree with that really I've specialized in abduction research um, in, in recent years and in fact I've put a lot of new cases into the uninvited and my general perception is that yeah these are not friendly people and the things that have been done are, are not good things and they are not being done with our consent uh, there is no permission granted uh, these procedures are intrusive, and yeah, that that is not a good thing. So I agree with um, Dave Jacobs. I agree with people like Bud Hopkins on mm -hmm, this. Mm -hmm. That I'm not saying there aren't some good cases, and I'm not saying there aren't some people who uh, you know derive a positive new age benefit from this. But fundamentally, these are not good things. That would be. That would be my conclusion as well, or at least I'm, I'm certainly not prepared to say that they're all warm and fuzzy and we should welcome them. I, I, I'm recalling uh, Independence Day, the movie, and I thought the first half of that movie uh, was very compelling because in that movie the aliens uh, did not want to make a deal with us. They didn't want our gold. They didn't want our women. They only wanted us to die. Uh, the movie kind of went downhill from that point, I thought, with some of the Area 51 baloney. But, you know, the first part of that, I thought, that could be quite realistic um, one day. In other words, uh, they really wouldn't want anything uh, except uh, for us to be off this planet entirely. Yes. Whatever they're doing, I don't think they're doing it for us. Because if they were, they would ask, or they would tell us. They are pursuing their own agenda, and because they do it with attempts to cover their tracks, this, this is a covert alien agenda. Um, and, you know, from, from someone who's looked at things from a kind of government and military point of view, yeah. when someone sneaks around and does things behind your back covertly, that's always a bad thing. Well, you actually don't work for the Ministry of Defense, so if there was government awareness... Uh, or a deal had been made, as many people speculate, or contact already has been made, you should know about it, shouldn't you, Nick? Well, some people have called me press officer for the cover-up here, which isn't too nice, but... No, that's um, not nice. No, I... It is I, not, it's not true, of course, right? It's not true, no. Um, you know, I've, I've been accused of all sorts of things, because I agree, it is... It is an unlikely scenario that someone in my position would, would come forward with these views. And would not know. 
and, and would not know. I think Nick, that... Nick, 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 oh, we're, yeah. we're, we're at the top of the hour, and it's a perfect place to hang up my audience. So hold on, all right? Oh, hold. <laughs> all right. Nick Pope, uh, who works for the Ministry of Defense in London, will be right back. Likely, then I'm sure Nick Pope is constantly fighting uh, the accusation that he is providing what the inside wants provided. We'll talk a little more about that, too. Yes. Back to Nick Pope in Great Britain. Nick, uh, welcome back. Thanks. Um, let's talk a little bit about uh, abductions. Uh, abductions are probably uh, the main focus of a lot of research uh, here in the U.S. by um, many, many researchers who are trying to get to the bottom of what's going on. What do you know about abductions uh, from your side of the Atlantic, and uh, what can you tell us? Well, I first came across these reports, um, you know, when I was looking at UFOs for the government, and um, the abduction reports came in too. And at first, I'll be honest with you, I was pretty skeptical of that. I thought I could just about comprehend that, uh, you know, some of the UFO sightings um, were, were interesting and merited further study. But I regarded the abductions as almost a kind of distraction. I thought, how can we make a case? How can we convince senior people within uh, the government, the military, whatever, that UFOs are real when all these other flaky reports came in? Sure. Um, but then I realized, then I actually started to meet some of the abductees. Um, and I realized what I guess every good scientist knows, that you can't filter out data just because it's inconvenient or doesn't fit your theories or just because you think it's too wacky. You have to go where the data takes you. And these people started coming and, and saying, look, I have had these experiences. These were often people that didn't know anything about ufology. Um, their, their knowledge of even basic cases and theories was non-existent. Uh, and yet, independently from all over the country, people were coming up with some remarkably similar accounts. Um, and that made me think there is a real phenomenon at work here. And, and one of the interesting things is, is that I came to regard, and I suppose this is just a, a, a quirky, amusing little soundbite, but in a way, the whole UFO question became irrelevant because the UFO became uh, simply a means of transport. The, the real issue was who's in the UFO? Why are they coming here? What are they doing? What do they want with us? Mm -hmm. And that's how I got into abductions. And I, I shouldn't have said UFOs are irrelevant. That's, that's a bit flippant. But um, let's just say that I, I have come to concentrate much more on abduction. And it is very sad that here in Britain, I'm not saying there aren't people that, uh, that do it, but when you think of the well-known abduction researchers, uh, Bud Hopkins, Dave Jacobs, John Mack, yes. you know, a lot of good work is being done in America, but you don't hear that much about what's going on here. And yet, it is going on here. So people just, uh, I don't know, they, they roll their eyes and they think that this is some sort of, uh, you know, lunatic fringe of the subject. Well, it's not. I, I've, I've worked, I guess, I've looked at over a hundred cases myself. Okay, um, well, I, here, let me ask you this. Um, as with ufology, uh, with the sightings of UFOs, you said, I think, you would study a hundred 
uh, or, or was it 300 cases? Three, 300 UFO cases and perhaps, a year I had. And, yeah, and perhaps end up with 30 that you felt uh, uh, were inexplicable in some way. Yeah. Now, with regard to abductions, uh, surely a number of the reports, some healthy percentage of the reports, are people who had dreams, uh, people who are mentally uh, disturbed in some way, uh, a bit of undigested uh, uh, meat at the wrong time, or, you know, something or another, all, all of that. But then there are a certain percentage of inexplicable uh, ones as well. Does it break down kind of the way the UFO thing does? I think it does. I totally agree that uh, many, many abduction accounts, as you say, some will be dreams, some will be hallucinations, or combinations of things like sleep paralysis and, uh, say, hypnagogic or hypnopompic imagery, mm. uh, mass hysteria, um, false memory syndrome, uh, all, all sorts of other things. I think it is more difficult to put a percentage on it. Uh, I think with UFOs, because you can look at things like radar um, and, and try to validate sightings to see if there was anything solid there, to see if it behaved in a way um, that uh, our own aircraft can't, you can pin down UFO sightings to a fair degree of certainty. With abductions, frankly, it's guesswork. Um, I, I'm extremely reluctant to put a figure on it, but I would say that maybe, I, I don't know, 20% of the reports that I get um, are really worthy of further study. That, that's not to say that, you know, one in five are definitely extraterrestrial. Mm -hmm. But, uh, yeah, there are other things. And, of course, you can never discount hoaxes. If you take the ones that you consider as probably genuine... Uh, and you uh, throw out all the others, and then you look at the ones that are probably genuine, uh, what kind of conclusions do you draw from the study of those? In other words, regarding why these are occurring, who they are, what they want, you know, all the normal questions. Yeah. Again, I find this incredibly difficult. I would like to be able to say to you that I have found one neat solution, but I haven't. I found a lot of different things going on. And, of course, it's not inconceivable that there are a number of different agenda being pursued in parallel. I have found cases which would validate uh, the research of people like Bud Hopkins and Dave Jacobs, suggesting that there is some sort of uh, breeding campaign going on, a, a, an effort to hybridize uh, humans with extraterrestrials. Mm -hmm. But I found other cases which, uh, I guess, more into the territory of, of people like John Mack. I have cases involving dual human-alien identity, things like that. Uh, people who recall uh, even past lives when, when they were extraterrestrials. Mm -hmm. I have cases, again, going back to perhaps um, Bud Hopkins and uh, the Linda Cortile case, I have cases where uh, it looks as if children were abducted repeatedly and put together right. in, in their early years to see how they would bond. That, that's my perception. I, I think extraterrestrials are interested in human relationships and human sexuality. Um, I have other cases, and this is a really interesting thing, I think, where it looks as if the focus is on actually effecting change on humanity. It almost looks... I have a number of cases where people come out of the experience very different to, to when they come into it. Mm -hmm. 
they have interests in in environmental issues um, in various um, uh, esoteric subjects they come back very often with in with enhanced psychic abilities abilities to do things like ESP to remote view things like that it's almost as if the abductions are a way of changing us as a species and that I find fascinating all right let's talk about uh, for a second the environment uh, I do a lot of reporting on that Nick I have a lot of scientists that come on this program and talk about the environment and here in America uh, we are noting whether it's short-term or profoundly long-term whatever it is the weather has changed um, it's not changing or it is continuing to change but it, it has already changed and become significantly more violent possibly due to global warming if you want to believe that story uh, possibly due to the sun but the weather is definitely uh, becoming more violent and unreliable here I would say that's true here too in Europe as well yes interesting uh, we've got the ozone to contend with we've got um, uh, big um, ice fields beginning to break off um, at the Antarctic uh, we've got all kinds of indicators um, of trouble in the environment with uh, small species with trouble in the ocean with the plankton trouble in the ocean with uh, um, all kinds of things of uh, some oceans dying real real serious trouble uh, in the environment and a lot of people think that if there is intervention going on it is related to what's happening right now yes I have a lot of cases um, abduction cases and I'm certainly not the only researcher who does of abductees who are shown apocalyptic images um, during their experiences sometimes on a screen of some sort almost as if they're being given a formal presentation other times they report images and feelings which are transmitted to them telepathically but this is a common theme that runs through a lot of cases I have and I think it could be some sort of a warning and these people come back and they are more inclined to take an interest in these sort of environmental issues to get involved in green politics to lobby for changes in, in environmental policy mm -hmm. that is I think a good thing um, almost like a Christmas carol where we're seeing we get, we get an opportunity to see Earth's possible future I think that's right I think there are a number of possible futures and I I'm not a great believer that the future is set I think we can change it and uh, again the transformative nature of the abduction experience uh, now a psychologist will tell you any traumatic or, or sensational experience is traumatic mm. is, is, is transformative rather that's true but the cases I have go beyond that it's almost as if deliberate changes are being engineered in people precisely um, I've got a fax here that I consider worthy of uh, reading to you it says both Nick Pope and a former military aide from Buckingham Palace were on a TV special that I saw recently could Nick possibly clarify about a Buckingham Palace military aide who apparently had unofficial permission from Prince Philip to look into at least one UFO event concerning military craft yes um, I think that's a reference to Sir Peter Horsley um, who was a former uh, 
supremely senior member of the Royal Air Force uh, who acted as a, as a sort of equerry to Prince Philip. And yes, that's right, he, he asked permission to look into the Air Force files and um, according to his testimony, Prince Philip was, was interested in that and uh, gave him permission in a discreet way to look into this. But uh, this is not the only case of very senior establishment figures within the British military taking an interest in this. Um, when he was alive, Lord Dowding, who was um, commander of, of Fighter Command during the Battle of Britain, he was a firm believer in an extraterrestrial reality. Mm-hmm. And, of course, even former chief of the defense staff, so, so someone who was doing, I guess, the job that someone like Colin Powell was doing when he was chairman of the Joint Chiefs, um, Lord Hill Norton here was former chief of the defense staff and former chairman of the NATO military committee and he is a believer in an extraterrestrial reality so in Britain I think there is a healthy tradition of people within the government within the military within the intelligence agencies taking a more positive view of this than many people in the public might might suppose now it would be amazing I suspect if in America a former chairman of the Joint Chiefs uh, spoke out on the UFO issue and yet this is happening here in Britain uh, and, and that's a puzzle to me, Nick. Uh, you're a puzzle to me. The others who are speaking out in Britain are a puzzle to me. Despite your movement toward a more open uh, government, in fact, your government has always been a little more closed than ours, so why is it happening there and not here? I don't know. I think, people ask me, is there a cover-up in Britain? And I'm convinced that there isn't. I'm convinced that the solution to this mystery is not going to be found in any files or, or, or whatever here in Britain and that what we're dealing with is people, senior military people genuinely doing their best to look into what they correctly perceive as an important mystery I think if there are answers to this um, I don't want to, you know, I'm not here to make accusations mm-hmm. but if, if there is a solution to this mystery if there is knowledge, I, I don't want to say complicity but if there's knowledge about this, it's probably on your side of the pond. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, you are one of our best allies, and one cannot imagine... One of? Well, <laughs> well we're, your, we're your best allies. There's Canada, there's Canada up to the north, and, uh, okay. and there's Great Britain. And certainly, we're all uh, very close. And I would imagine that your government, at some level, might well know what my government probably knows, and... I guess I've got to ask you, Nick, even though you're in the Ministry of Defense, and I'm sure you've been asked this, do you imagine it to be possibly true that there would be knowledge uh, above your level that uh, uh, of everything, that, or at least some of what's going on, that uh, you are not privy to, and you are uh, an honest but useful spokesman uh, for those who really don't want everything known. It's, it's possible. I know that people like Stanton Friedman have said, not, not necessarily towards me, but uh, that ego does get in the way here. Mm. And it is very tempting to say, no, no, I would have known. I think I would have known, but of course I can't rule out the fact that things would have been going on that I had no knowledge of. All I can say is that, to the best of my knowledge, 
uh, those people never sought access to the one thing they would have needed, I would have thought from me, the raw data coming in, the, the UFO sightings, the abduction reports, the crop circles, the animal mutilations. All right. Hold it right there. We're at the bottom of the hour. We'll be right back with Nick Pope. I'm Art Bell. Um, since I've got Nick Pope here from uh, London, and since he is an official government employee, the Ministry of Defense, of all things, I guess I want to ask one question, then we'll go to the phones. Nick, um, here in America, a couple of years ago, uh, we, for some reason, the Air Force decided that it was going to have a press conference on the subject of Roswell, the famous Roswell case here in uh, uh, New Mexico. Yes. And so they had it, and it was a Roswell case closed, that's what it was called, and uh, we were shown pictures of experimental uh, aircraft and balloons and balloon trains and dummies that were dumped out of airplanes and so on and so on. And we had a Colonel Haynes, uh, who was the presenter for all of this. And he came out and talked about things like time compression. Uh, you know, he talked about the fact that people, why, you know, after a certain amount of time goes by, they begin to forget what really happened and things get added to the original story. And time, he said, gets compressed. And that was his answer for what what occurred at, uh, at Roswell. And I, I always imagined some cigar-chomping general telling this poor Colonel Haynes, now, Colonel, you're going to have to go out there and you're going to have to tell him, uh, you're going to have to talk about time compression, son. And I, I, I can see the colonel saying, but, but, uh, but General, uh, time, time compression, how can I possibly explain away what uh, all these witnesses have said and what we know and has been written about Roswell would just go out there, son, it's going to do your career good. Talk to him about time compression. Well, did you see that news conference? Um, no, I think I read, uh, I, I read uh, the report on it, though, and... I, I certainly agree that to a, to an extent, yes, witnesses are fallible and witnesses make mistakes. Of course. And, and with the, the passing of time, people's memories become clouded. I think that's human nature. Mm. Um, applies to everything, uh, not just UFOs. But I don't think you can wave a magic wand and explain the entire Roswell incident in those terms. And I think they did themselves a disservice by mm. trying to bring in the... The, the kind of high-altitude parachute test business with the dummies and things like that. I thought same thing. In other words, the, yeah. it was as if they were trying to, at least the end effect of this news conference, was to fire the whole subject up, not, not put it away. Well, it, it certainly was very embarrassing the way that people came back, I, I think, within, within a matter of hours, or if, if not hours, days, and said, hey, but those those tests with, with the dummies didn't begin until, what was it, 52, something like that. Quite right. So right straight away, they, the, the whole case had been undermined. And, at the, you know, maybe that's careless, but who knows? I mean, I, I've written press briefs myself. And, you know, again, without wanting to criticize, it's not the way I would have done it if I'd have wanted to, to close a case. Mm-hmm. Um, one more thing. Again, going back to these craft... These very large craft that uh, commercial aircraft have reported to be as big as football fields or bigger 
traversing the uh, the North Atlantic at incredible speeds. Um, does your government uh, have any additional information? I mean, I, I, I get BBC reports of pilot sightings and that kind of thing, and American pilots have seen them, and they call them fast walkers, I believe. Nobody... Yeah, the... The amazing thing about this was that uh, when I first became aware of these things, um, through the embassies, we asked the American government, well, what do you know about this? Is, yes. on, is this something that you're operating? What yeah. do you know about it? Yeah. They fired back and said, no, is it one of yours? <laughs> <laughs> um, how, Nick, how good and, and uh, at what depth do you think your government and uh, my government communicate on this subject? Or can you not talk about I, that? I don't know on that. I don't, my impression is that um, if there is contact, it's, it's unofficial. Mm -hmm. um, you know, some things are perhaps, you know, however special the relationship, are always going to be held nationally. As, as, as we like to say, the only way to keep a secret is not to tell anybody. Mm-hmm. All right, I would like to bring some people on and let them uh, ask you questions if you're up for that. Yeah, fine. I mean, it really is rather unusual. Uh, do you know of any other governments that have a, a counterpart like yourself that uh, is made available for interviews like the one we're doing right now? I, I don't know, but I mean, of course, I should say that I'm not speaking as an official spokesperson here. I mean, that my, my official government research is, is something um, that, that I did for much of the early 90s, but not anymore. Mm -hmm. So I'm, this is not an official statement. But of course, it's not the first time that somebody involved with with government UFO research has spoken out. And no, I mean, yes, but, but it's yeah. really got to be said, Nick, that if they didn't want you there, uh, here right now, you wouldn't be here. Okay, but I mean, people in, in America, for example, people like uh, Ruppelt spoke out, and, and, you know, he'd been involved and headed up Blue Book, for a couple of years. It's true, but generally here in America, the speaking up occurs after the retirement. Yeah, okay, that's a fair point. Uh, Colonel Corso, for example, yeah. uh, so many others, after retirement, never uh, while uh, they're currently in active service. Uh, that's very unusual. All right, well, let's, uh, let's go to the phones and see what we've got here. On the wild card line, you're on the air with Nick Pope in London. Hello. Hi, Eric. This is Andy from Largo, Florida. Yes, sir. Uh, question, Doctor. In your opinion, does uh, extraterrestrial uh, engineering play any kind of an influence in our propulsion systems? And if so, like watching the space shuttle tonight go up, we're still using fuel and rivets and hmm. stuff like that. Well, you hear stories about these spacecraft being like, with, like as if they're one mold, no riveting whatsoever. So that obviously has to play a part of it. But when, in your opinion, will we see anti-gravity systems where we won't need to burn fuel? All right. Uh, I, you know, really, it's quite a good question, Nick. In other words, uh, do you believe that your government or my government, our government here, are in, in possession of any craft that, that uh, they are back engineering and that there are propulsion systems out there now that, that uh, we're, we're using of the sort he described? Again, the truthful answer, because I have no direct knowledge, is I don't know. I have to say there are some cases which, which suggest that that might be so. Um, certainly, if you look, I guess, back to the Cash Landrum incident in 1980, 
it appeared that a, a craft of some sort was being escorted by a number of uh, military helicopters. I have a case um, in, involving a, a UFO sighting in February 93 um, from um, uh, Los Angeles, actually. Um, an abductee I'm working with now mm -hmm. saw a, a UFO in broad daylight in Brentwood, um, which looked as if it was being escorted or chased, we don't know which, by five unmarked helicopters. Um, if we do have technology, it is extraordinarily difficult to back-engineer it. Um, so I can quite understand that if we did have it, we, we still don't have that technology. Let me give you an analogy. If a stealth fighter had crashed, say, during one of the, I mean, somehow or the other, going back through time, and crashed, you know, on the field of, of one of the Civil War battles in America, mm -hmm. the finest scientific minds in the country would probably not have been able to put it back together again uh, or build one. That's even figuring they, they knew what it was. So it is extraordinarily difficult, even with something simple, to back-engineer. You can't just wave a magic wand and say, ah, oh, that's how it's done. It doesn't work like that. Um, so who knows? But it's interesting, one little snippet of information. I saw that um, uh, the other day, NASA, or a few months back, I think, NASA actually placed a research contract um, for an anti-gravity study. Mm -hmm. Now, that doesn't, didn't come from a UFO magazine. That was in, I think, the scientific journals, um, either New Scientist or Scientific American. For a UFO study. Well, not for a UFO study. Uh, I'm anti sorry, anti-gravity. Anti yeah. um, which is kind of like a UFO. Listen, Nick, uh, do you know where I live? Uh, no. No. I live in Nevada. Nick, I live um, about 65 miles west of Las Vegas, and just over the mountain range from me is Area 51 and Area S4, mm -hmm. where on nearly any given night, you can go up there if you wish, and you can watch things that uh, seem to defy gravity um, flitting about in the sky in ways that normal aircraft don't. Now. It was some years ago, Nick, and this is an absolutely true story. My wife and I were on the way home from Las Vegas to here in Pahrump. Um, about a quarter mile from home, maybe a little more, my wife, who was in the passenger seat, said, what the hell is that? And she noticed something coming up from behind. I pulled the car over to the side of the road. We both got out. She came around to the driver's side, and we both watched this triangular object that I would estimate to be 150 feet from one point of the triangle to the other, um, only about 150 feet above me, Nick, and I was in the U.S. Air Force. I know what um, aerodynamic flight requires. This thing was moving at about 30 miles an hour, if that fast. Obviously, nothing that uh, would be... Uh, you could hear crickets at a quarter of a mile away right. here, here at night in the desert. It passed directly over our head, Nick. The stars went away. The moon went away. It passed. You could see the solid bottom side of the craft. We watched it float out across the valley toward Area 51 for, oh, I don't know, four or five minutes with our mouths open. And it was that close. I mean, I, it's like I could have taken a rock and thrown it at the damn thing if I wasn't in shock, and I was in shock. Mm -hmm. So, um, if that's not anti-gravity, then I don't know what it is. Sure. 
the question, I suppose, is do we have that technology, or was that being piloted by extraterrestrials? That is and, the question, yes, indeed. Yeah, and I kind of tend to think that we don't have that technology. But, as, as I say, you know, I simply don't know. <laughs> but I have, a, I have a similar case to that, actually. Um, and again, some people think, why is it that all these really good sightings happen in America? I have a case not too dissimilar to that involving a, a huge triangular-shaped craft. Yes. The only weird, weird thing about this, all the witnesses who spoke to me about it, most of them were military. And this flew over an Air Force base. In fact, two Air Force bases oh. in England. Uh, and which bases would those be? Um, RAF Cosford and RAF Shawbury. It's one of the cases in Open Skies Closed Minds, but uh, the witness saw it fire a beam of light down at the, um, the fields just beyond the uh, perimeter fence of the base. Hmm. He said it moved over. Uh, he, he said it was about the size. He said it midway between a C-130 Hercules and, and a Boeing 747. So big... <laughs> That's about 150, 100 feet above the ground, traveling very, very slowly mm -hmm. with a low-frequency humming sound mm -hmm. coming out. Um, and then he said the light retracted back into the craft and the thing moved off from, from having gone at 20 or 30 miles an hour. He, he said in an instant it was off to the horizon. And, and this guy was an Air Force, serving Air Force officer, giving me this report. So he could estimate speeds and heights pretty well. Well, again, Nick, my government's official position is that whatever these things are, they are not a threat to national security. What is your government's official position? Well, a question about this incident, after I wrote it in the book, uh, there was a question in, in our parliament here about that. Parliament here about that. And the official response was... Um, that the government keeps an open mind on these sorts of incidents uh, but does not believe it to be proof of extraterrestrials. Well, you, you know, you can argue yourself round in circles on this. Yeah, until you actually get one of these things, of course you can't say for sure, but hey, what I say is when it does things that we can't do and, and it didn't show up on radar and we didn't even manage to get any of our jets in the air, We'd better be worried about this. Well, for example, here in the U.S., a number of years ago, in Michigan, we had uh, a particularly striking uh, set of sightings uh, over Lake Michigan, uh, moving towards Chicago, and and I and I have a tape uh, of the radar operator and of the 911 dispatcher and all these calls coming in, and then. The, uh, uh, the, the, uh, the weather radar guy saying, oh, my God, now there's two, now there's three, now they're moving together, they're going at an impossible speed. All of this stuff from the, uh, the, the radar fellow that was on the line to the 911 operator, these are very solid reports, and I find it beyond reason to believe that our government would not regard an invasion of its airspace, something we zealously protect here and I'm sure there as well um, not to be a, a, a matter of national security I, I agree, I mean there was a, a wave of UFO sightings in New Hampshire um, in 93 
and uh, the local paper ran a front page story and in huge letters it said if you see a UFO over the Piscataka River do not call 911 it is not an emergency <laughs> and they were getting so many calls that, that the system was getting overloaded but I agree you know these things are of extreme defense significance there are serious defense and national security issues at stake here okay, until so we know what they are so then you must understand why so many people are skeptical in our in, in my country and yours at least my country when 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 our government says they are not a matter of national security that yeah i think the truth of the matter is that if there isn't a cover-up and i know a lot of people will disagree with that but if there isn't the simple truth is that the government doesn't know and cannot control this and yes. that's one thing governments can't stand not being in control I was just about to say that. That's the only other reasonable uh, explanation. Uh, that is that since they cannot control it and cannot tell us what it is, they don't want to scare us by telling us that, so they say it's nothing. I would tend to agree with that more than I would support a cover-up. All right. Um, East of the Rockies, you're on the air with Nick Pope. Hi. Good morning, Art. This is uh, Barry, and I am calling from Columbia, WVOC 56, the yes. radio station. Yes, sir. And I was wondering if Mr. Pope uh, would comment about uh, a book that I have heard, not only have I heard about, but I also have a copy of it, by an Englishman named Leslie Watkins. The book is called Alternative 3. Now, Art, I know that I've sent you some information because I think I shared a letter that Mr. Watkins wrote to me when he answered my a letter that I wrote to him and I was just wondering what he would know about Alternative 3 and the stuff that, that was written in this book it seems so far out and so out in left field but as time has progressed on and on it seems like I see stuff materializing from this book like the possibility of the ozone layer the the, the astronauts were mentioned about what they did or didn't see on the moon. All right, we're kind of pressed for time this hour, so uh, Nick, any knowledge about Alternative 3? Yeah, I mean, uh, my perception, and I'm sorry to, to kind of say this, is, is that it was probably a hoax, but um, if you want to talk to someone here who knows a bit more about that, uh, you'd have to ask someone like Georgina Bruni onto the, the show. She, she's actually someone who's putting together a book on, on the Bentwaters incident at the moment that's going to be out next year, but uh, Alternative 3 is something she's looked into. Um, so I'm, I might have to pass the buck there. Sorry. I don't know enough about it to really comment. Are you good for one more hour? Yeah, one more hour I can do. All right, excellent. Uh, because I do want to ask you about Bentwaters, of course. We couldn't finish the program without doing that, and sure. a lot of people want to talk to you, so excellent. Stay right there. My guest is a Ministry of Defense employee, has been so since 1985, specifically studying the kinds of things that we talk about in Great Britain. And it's, it's kind of a little shameful. To me, it's shameful that I've got to call London to get a government employee who will talk about this when I can't call anybody here. We'll be right back. Are you there? Yes, I am. Okay. Um, listen, your book, by the way, is it is it available still? Yes. Um, both Open Skies, Closed Man Minds, and The Uninvited are published in America by the Overlook Press. And The Uninvited has just come out in a mass market paperback through Dell Publishing. 
So you, you should be able to get them in the States. As Most well bookstores, or if they don't have them in the, in the bookstores, they can order them. Yeah. Okay, very good. Um, east of the uh, Rockies, you're on the air with Nick Pope. Hello there. Uh, hi, I'm calling from Cincinnati, Ohio, east of the Rockies. I listened to you on the 610 out of uh, Columbus, Ohio. Yes, sir. And, uh, yes, for Mr. Pope, uh, I had heard you uh, saying a little bit ago that um, you'd said that the uh, you had felt that these um, aircrafts were possibly uh, threats to national, national security, whereas Art said that the U.S. government's stance on it was um, that they were not threats to national security. My question for you is, um, I mean, just looking at, you know, looking at this whole thing and, and seeing that these beings, quote-unquote beings, if, uh, if they're this much advanced, if they're this much more advanced than we are, and I'll go so far as to presume that their weaponry is too, that don't you think that if they wanted to take us, they would have already done it? I think that's right. That's assuming, though, that they're here for a, a straight kind of Independence Day scenario, you know, a wipeout, a takeover, whatever. But I often like to speculate that the real reasons... Um, their motivation and indeed their modus operandi are going to be literally alien so there are going to be things that they do and things that they think that we simply can't understand and I don't think it's necessarily the case and, and this is going to be a controversial idea I don't think it's necessarily the case that they are as far ahead of us as, as we think um, and that means that there might be things that we could do. Now, I'm not suggesting for one moment that we, we get into some sort of shooting war. That would be silly. But um, we, we could make things difficult and we could let it be known that, uh, you know, we are going to take care of, of our airspace. We're, we're going to police it. And we're going to take care of our people. And, and we're not going to be happy with people being taken against their will and uh, subjected to these experiences. With okay, a proper you, integrated air defense network with increased radar coverage uh, and, and things like that, I think we can track these people better than, than you might think. Okay, thank you very much, sir. All right, thank you uh, very much for the call. Now, in America, I guess the most famous case is Roswell. In Great Britain, I think the most famous case is Bentwaters. Is that is that uh, fair to say, or do that's you, correct? Yeah, it, it is correct. Um, what can you tell us from your position about Bentwaters? Uh, what do you know? What investigation of Bentwaters uh, have you done? Have you talked to witnesses? What have you done, Nick? Okay. Well, when I took over, um, you know, the job looking at these UFO sightings uh, for the government, there was a file on the Rendlesham Forest incident and one of the first things I did in the job is I read this file and at the end of it I just thought my gosh what the hell happened there right. um, it seemed to me that we had handed to us on a plate you know pretty much as much proof and, and convincing evidence uh, as, as you could want and yet we seem to let this opportunity for some reason slip through our fingers. On the face of it, we have an incident in, in December 1980 where a, a whole string of United States Air Force personnel witnessed not just lights in the sky, but also at one stage uh, a metallic craft. On the ground. Yeah, on the ground. In the woods. And, you know, the great thing about this is that it left traces and always 
when I was researching my own cases, I, I would love it where we could get this kind of secondary evidence mm -hmm. where you could get burn marks, uh, tree damage, that sort of thing. And uh, this object, and we know it was an object, had a definite effect on the environment. There was tree damage right where the guard patrol said that the craft had been. There were indentations right on the forest floor where this thing had been seen to land. And best of all, they took radiation readings. Now, I reopened the investigation into this case. Oh. Of course, it was difficult because it was many years later. But one thing I did is I took those radiation readings and I gave them to uh, the Defense uh, Radiological Protection Service, mm -hmm. uh, an official government uh, organization in Britain. And I said, just tell me, I said, is this normal or not? I mean, no one had looked into these, these readings. No one had compared them to what the, the levels should have been. I found that incredible. The answer came back, whatever it was, was ten times background radiation. Mm. So, again, scientific, empirical evidence that there was a structured craft there that it left an effect on the environment. Now, I've spoken to people like Larry Warren um, and, and Peter Robbins, of course, um, and, and I've spoken also at, uh, at length to Charles Holt. I'm convinced that um, these people are being, being truthful. I think in cases they have you know, they've got different bits of the same story, so I don't necessarily read too much into the fact that some of the accounts differ. That's what you find in, in real incidents. Yes. Where I get suspicious is where everyone says exactly the same. Um, I, and I just think it's, it, it is, without question, the, the best case in the country. Now, there is going, I, I'm a great fan of, of uh, uh, Peter and Larry's book, Left at Eastgate, um, which I think is excellent. Yes. A, a British researcher called Georgina Bruni is just putting the finishing touches to what I think will be the definitive book on, on the Bentwaters incident. And her book will be published, I think, uh, next year, pretty much late next year on the 20th anniversary of, of the incident. So uh, I know that she's tracked down many, many new witnesses, that she's got a number of senior people in the defense and political world to speak out and say what they think and what they know about this case. Um, so this case is going to run and run. Um, and I think on the 20th anniversary uh, with Georgina's book, we're going to see some, some real resurgence of interest. In a way, I think this case is better than Roswell because, <laughs> again, Colonel Haynes was right. Time compression uh, does exist. Yes. It is difficult with a case 50 years old where most of the witnesses are dead. But Bentwaters, you know, pretty much everyone is still here. That's true. That's true. And I think it is our. It represents possibly our best opportunity to crack this open. Okay, let's for one second before we go back to the phones. Uh, let me ask you: In America, we have. Um, we have something called the Brookings Institution, and they did a study on the uh, probable consequences of contact, should it occur, and how the American people would react. And it wasn't really good news. In other words, um, it concluded the American people would not react well, that a lot of what they believed in uh, would be challenged, 
and that um, uh, there would be general chaos if contact actually were to occur. And I suppose the, the recommendation was that, if possible, the American people would not be told or should not be told. Uh, have there been any similar studies in Great Britain uh, on this subject? There have been, but not, I mean, not official studies. There have been some privately sponsored opinion polls, mm -hmm. which tend to suggest, as I think is the case in the States, that uh, belief in an extraterrestrial reality is, is running pretty high, uh, sometimes over 50%, I think, consistently. Oh, yes. Over 50%. Um, I'm not so sure, and it's just a gut feeling, that there would be panic in the streets, etc., etc. I think, in a way, the question is, is so open-ended because it depends on the circumstance of the contact. One issue that, to me, seems to have been sidestepped, and this is, to me, from my official background, much more important, is the potential biological hazard um, for, from contact. Of course. You think about the decimation of, of various uh, indigenous peoples around the world when they've come into contact with, with travelers. Yeah, all we need is the Pleiadian flu. <laughs> but, yeah, I, I mean, I think this, this is an issue which needs to be gripped. Um, you know, we've seen terrible deaths uh, here, here on Earth. Imagine the potential of, of two entirely different species from two entirely different ecosystems coming into contact. Now that happens already during the abductions, but that's during a, you know, that's a carefully controlled environment. Well, one has to imagine that might be why there has not been contact yet. That, that is a possible uh, inhibitor to that, yes. Um, so it makes the idea of UFO crashes even more disturbing, and perhaps the, the potential biohazard um, is one possible reason, and this is only my personal speculation, but, but why governments, if there had been a crash somewhere, would rush to secure the crash site and immediately seal it off. Not so much to stop the public knowing the truth, but to protect the entire world from a potential hazard which could wipe us all out. And did a motion picture called Mars Attacks make it to Great Britain? It did, and uh, I confess that I haven't got round to seeing it never, yet, never despite the fact it. that everyone has told me to. Yeah, the, the little town that was destroyed uh, at the beginning of that motion picture was my town. Pahrump, oh, right. Yeah, little Pahrump, Nevada. And I, I think that uh, they took a stab of humor uh, at me, but uh, they destroyed the town and the people. It was awful. Um, catch it when you can. East of the Rockies, you're on the air with Nick Pope. Hi. Hi. Oh, you're going to have to yell at us, son. I don't hear yeah, you too well. I'm sorry. Is it better? That's a little better. Okay. Uh, I'm, I'm calling from uh, Harker Heights, Texas. Texas? Okay. Yeah, I listen to you on uh, KJFK. Yes, ma'am. Okay. Now, the question I have is, with the, with the abductions, is it a common thing for people when they've been abducted to come out of it with nosebleeds? Yes, it is. Really? Yeah. I, I found that in quite a lot of cases. Um, now, of course, it's difficult to say... When, when children are involved, because, of course, for all sorts of very ordinary medical reasons, um, children get nosebleeds all the time. But what I found is that adults, um, you know, who have not had a nosebleed for years and years, in the aftermath of, of say, UFO sightings or abductions, will, will suddenly get this. And in a way, this is very traumatic. I mean, you know, seeing your own blood 
even in a, a nosebleed, uh, can be very distressing. Mm. And I've had abductees. Uh, I have several cases where abductees have been almost more upset by the nosebleed than the actual experience. Now, that's, that's very interesting, ma'am. Why did you ask that question? Uh, uh, because the other... Uh, well, um, several years ago, when my 14-year-old was about two years old, I had uh, fallen asleep in my car and then woke up in my bedroom. And when I got up, I had this nosebleed. And then just a couple of days ago, I got up and I had another nosebleed. And, you know, it's been years since I've had a nosebleed. I hear just you. Boom like that. Well, uh, at one moment being in your car and the next being in your bed, uh, now that's that's very disturbing. Uh, it, it's strange. Uh, thank you very much. I had not heard of the nosebleed thing before, but a, a nosebleed um, might well be uh, because of a pressure change. Um, it, it might well be, but I think the more popular theory amongst abduction researchers is that it has to do with either the insertion or removal of an implant. Uh -huh. Now, that's something you should ask Whitley about tomorrow because I know he knows a, a, a lot about that. And uh, say to hi to him from me, by the way. But, yes, Whitley, um, Whitley, as you well know, has uh, an implant in his ear. I had the surgeon, Nick... Uh, who tried to remove this implant on my program, uh -huh. and this surgeon came on and said, look, I, I, I took the scalpel, and I made a cut, and I got close to the implant, and the damn thing moved. It literally moved away from the scalpel. And he said, um, I asked Whitley, should I proceed? And he said yes, and he went in further with the scalpel, and bear in mind, this is a surgeon talking to me. And he said, I got close to it again, and it moved again. And at this point, I told Whitley, I'm going to quit. I'm going to sew you back up because I'm going to do you damage if we keep this up. Yes, it's, it's almost as if, uh, and, and I've heard these accounts before, it's almost as if they are biomechanical. Um, but certainly, I think, again, it's indicative of the covert nature of, of what's going on. We are clearly not really supposed to know all about this. Mm. So our best efforts to get proof are often thwarted uh, by, by the controlling intelligence. So this sort of thing does not surprise me. They are covering their tracks, or they're doing their best to. Mm. All right, Nick, uh, hold on. We've got one more segment to go. Nick Pope is here, and he works for the Ministry of Defense in Great Britain. He is in London. Even though it sounds like he's right in our backyard, a very, very good phone connection from London. I'm Art Bell, and this, of course, is Coast to Coast AM. Don't touch that dial. Nick Pope is here, and we'll get right back to the phone. Just a, uh, a quick little item from the New York Times, uh, yesterday's edition, as a matter of fact, of the New York Times. A Dayline Washington Congress says in a new report, the Pentagon defied the law as well as the Constitution by spending, listen now, hundreds of millions of dollars on military projects that lawmakers never approved 
including a super-secret Air Force program. The Pentagon acknowledged that some of the accusations Wednesday night uh, were, they said, honest mistakes which led to its failure to notify Congress about the way it was spending money. Now, Nick, that's kind of interesting. That's front page of uh, New York Times. Uh, our own government admitting they've spent hundreds of millions of dollars, and they're, they're sort of saying here that, sorry, we just, it was a mistake, we forgot to notify you. Hundreds of millions on secret projects. Yeah, I... Things like that, when they happen, are very unfortunate. Mm -hmm. But um, I have... That... Um, bureaucracy wins over conspiracy every time <laughs> and the truth of it is that within government just the same as within society as a whole in business in family affairs people make mistakes and i i tend to be more charitable to, towards that because well, that, that's I think, because you you're know, a government you're a, you're a bureaucrat <laughs> it's, it's human nature people <laughs> you know government is a complicated business and with the best will in the world these, these things happen. But in my experience, uh, people within the government and the military are, are all fundamentally honest, decent people. Mm -hmm. That, of course, really is true. Um, so if there is a conspiracy, uh, it's well held. All right. Yes, uh, I, I think so. Well, a wild card line? You're on the air with Nick Pope in London. Hello. Hi. I uh, just about fell out of my chair when I heard the last call because it reflects uh, something that I'm going through right now. You're uh, having a nosebleed. I'm having more than a nosebleed. I'm having a nose geyser. Uh, a nose geyser? Oh, my. About three months ago. And, and let me preface at the outset that I have no recollection of any little green man or mm -hmm. being swept away or anything like that. Mm -hmm. About three months ago, I started undergoing some psychological changes, a much more uh, relaxed view of things, uh, much less uptight than I've been for most of my 47 years. That corresponded with a huge divot in my left nostril as if something that had been there for a long time had been removed. I, as it happens, I went to an otolaryngologist, which is a $3 word for an eye, ear, nose, and throat guy, on Wednesday, and the guy examined me, seemed to be very agitated, uh, gave me some saline solution, and told me there was basically nothing wrong with me, but couldn't explain why my nose has been bleeding profusely all day long for three months. My God. Um... And, and you say there's a definite divot. Oh, yeah. I mean, it, it is, it is pr almost ready to break through to the other side. I mean, I, I, I have the kind of uh, gash in there that long-term cocaine users get, and I have never touched the stuff. Nick? Well, uh, yeah, I think that's fascinating. And the thing which really made me, you know, stop and think that this, this could be an abduction case is that you said that you had had some some psychological changes. Well, um, let me interject here, if I may. These abduction cases tend to be well, where the same specimen is, in effect, taken several times, right? Well, no, nobody knows. I mean, there, there are many different things going on, and okay. not all abductees will, will have implants. I had a reason for asking that question. Over my lifetime, I've had some odd, odd uh, things that I couldn't explain. Let me give you one example. This is going back 25 years. I used to live in uh, Orange County in upstate New York. And for any of the listeners in New York State, they'll be familiar with the Walk Hill River. On one night when uh, I was driving home from, uh, from my bus stop, I worked in New York City at the time, was making a hairpin turn around the Walk Hill River 
uh, on a night when it was snowing and icing. And I was going like five miles an hour in the first gear for fear of spinning. Um, the area where I was turning, um, the, the local government had stopped putting up the retaining wall so many times because so many cars had gone over the edge. I'm driving in a little lightweight Pinto, and I'm going five miles an hour, and I end up going into a spin anyway. The car starts to, um, being a new driver at the time, not knowing any better. I slam my brakes on, so of course I begin to spin even faster. Right. Make a long story short, I'm spinning closer and closer and closer and closer. I'm about to go over the edge of this stuff. I screamed, no, not in fear, but in anger. Then all of a sudden, it's as if you know a movie had stopped shooting, and then the next scene was shot three months later, and it was cut together. All of a sudden, the car was at a dead stop. I was at so close to the edge that I couldn't get out of the car on that side. I climbed over the uh, stick shift in the middle, got out the other side to see what had stopped me, and there was nothing. nothing. The thing is, you talk about uh, in all these abduction things a sense of missing time. Yes. Yeah. I had a huge sense of missing time. Not that I, not minutes, not hours. It seemed, it felt to me as if months were missing. And yet, from that point on, I drove home and there was no missing time at all. Well, you know what, sir, based on what you've told me, I, I would say that you should get yourself to somebody like John Mack uh, as quickly as you can. I, that, that's really what I would recommend. If you uh, really want to know what happened to you, mm -hmm. go to somebody who's really good in this field. John Mack is really good, or somebody... How at, do I go about reaching him? At, he's at Harvard. At, at his level, somebody at his level, tell him what you have told us just now, and begin to find out what happened to you. Uh, what What do you think? Uh, what do I think happened? No. Foggy's notion. <laughs> no, no, I understand that. No, I was asking Nick what his advice yeah. would, would I, be. I think this this could well be an abduction. When you have two things happen together, when you have three things, when you have perception of missing time, when you have an unexplained incident like that, when you have the nosebleeds, and when you have the the transformation uh, in, in your life, in your outlook. All these things individually, you know, you can make excuses for. But when all these things happen together, I think it could well be uh, a sign of an abduction. And I agree, it's, it's worth seeking out someone like John Mack, Bud Hopkins, Dave Jacobs, uh, you know, to, to look into this. I'm Deep going to have uh, David Jacobs on uh, next week, caller. Mm -hmm. All right? Yep. Okay, so uh, uh, stay in contact, but that is a remarkable story, and that's the first nose geyser I've heard of. Uh, East of the Rockies, you're on the air with Nick Pope. Hi. Hi, Art. Yes, sir. Hi, Art, Nick. Um, I'm Scott, uh, just outside of Gainesville, Florida. Okay. Um, I'm glad the last two callers were on. I'd like to relate a story that happened to me. I'm a former uh, police officer from a major Southern California city. Yes, sir. And... Uh, start uh, a routine night I was working a uh, third shift and uh, uh, I got a call it was like 1.30 in the morning and uh, I responded and I keep a log in my I used to keep a log in my unit when right. I, the time I got the call the time I got there and the time I left right and uh, it was a routine call in fact I never even got out of my car it lasted maybe a minute and a half and I left and this is like 1.30 in the morning. My next recollection was about an hour and 50 minutes later. Oh, and I'd driven through, out of my jurisdiction, our jurisdiction, through another city and just inside a third city. 
I don't remember doing that. What I do remember is waking up. You were alone in the patrol car. Well, there's a catch to my story. All right. Um, so after that happened, uh, it's not like anybody was out looking for me, but I do know that four other officers did respond to four of my calls that were on my beat. And uh, so I drove back and basically was non-functional for uh, like a week. Well, you probably uh, thought you were in big trouble. Well, fortunately, it only went to a certain level. What happened? It just it never left our squad. It, I think it went to my sergeant. It, I'm sure it went to the lieutenant too. Mm-hmm. But uh, it never left. It, it just went to a certain level. And uh, did you write it up? As best I could at the time, but as time went on, I remembered more details of what happened. And that was like right after I left that original call. What did you begin to remember? What I remember is leaving the call, and I remember there's a hill. I drove up the hill and made a right-hand turn, and I remember what sounded like driving through broken glass. Or either that or somebody taking their hands and crushing the back of my windshield in the unit. Breaking glass. Right. And uh, and driving into a black hole. And the next thing I remember is waking up. It was about, it was about I think it was 22 miles away. Holy smokes. Right. Yeah, this, this is quite typical. Um, and, and the feeling of disorientation as well is something that I've come across before. Um, I, I have a case here in England involving um, missing time of about three and a half hours where somebody, uh, two people in a car this time, which is quite unusual uh, for these experiences, found themselves, uh, one moment they were driving along the freeway, the next moment they were in a, in a city centre. These things happen, and, and the more people come forward and speak out, particularly... Uh, you know, people who who have had responsible positions in the community. Um, you know, the quicker I think the public at, at large will yes. see that we are dealing with a real phenomenon. Are you tempted, uh, sir, to to seek somebody uh, as we've been talking to the other callers like John Mack or Bud Hopkins or somebody or another to try and get to the bottom of what you know, fill in the empty spots? Yes, Art, I am. Um, especially as time goes on. Uh, the, you know, and I, I have talked to other people about it, not publicly, but I have talked to other people about it. But let me go back to the catch of my story. Sure. I had a partner. You had a partner? Yes, I was not alone. You had a partner in the vehicle? In the vehicle. And <laughs> proceed, please. Uh... Okay. Um, like I said, when I woke up, I was uh, in another neighborhood, which I did not recognize right away. Right. And when I woke up, I picked my head up. My my unit was in drive, and the engine was running. And the first thing I did, as I cleared the fog, I looked to my right, and I looked at my partner. And I stared at him for five seconds, and he picked his head up. So he was gone, too? Yes. But neither one of us said anything to each other. In fact, he wasn't my partner. He was, he was in training, a new guy, and I didn't know who he was. I knew, I knew of him, but I didn't really know who he was. And that's the only night we worked together. And 
we we didn't say anything, and I think I understand why. Because I felt stupid. That's that was you know, because I was totally confused. I felt stupid, and I believe that he felt like he fell asleep and didn't know what was going on. Do you know where this man is now? He, yeah, he's probably he's still there. He's still there. Yeah. Um, I think I would be tempted uh, to try and contact him and have a discussion about the experience now. Yeah, I wish I did at the, at the time, but I, I, you know, we're busy. I lost track of him, you know, even that week, and I don't know where he went or who he was working with. Or well, that's a remarkable story. Uh, so I would seek some help. I would uh, try and get in touch with your partner, and I, I, I don't know what else to tell you except that is a, just an astounding story, and it, it's uh, a great story, and I, I think that's very good advice. Yeah, um, Nick, uh, do you have? Any idea? You mentioned that they seem to be interested um, in 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 our in, in our sexual nature, our reproduction. Others have said in our genetic structure, there's a group of, of people who believe that um, the Greys or the whoever they are uh, have a weakened genetic structure, and they're uh, trying to strengthen their genetic structure by mixing it with ours. Um, do you have any beliefs in this area about what's going on? I think that all these things could be going on in parallel. I, I think it's very unlikely that simply one facet of human behavior is going to be of interest to these people. So I would not rule out a scenario where they are interested in all these things. Um, and also, and, and this is something I keep coming back to because it, it crops up in my caseload, um, they are very, very interested in human relationships, how we bond with people, how, how a mother bonds with a child, how, how we form friendships, how we form sexual relationships. These are focuses of their interest. It is very, very, very interesting that you should say that because I had a man on the air uh, who does remote viewing not long ago named uh, Ed Dames. Oh, yeah. And... Oh, you know Ed. You I, know I, I've not met him, but I know his work. I know of his work. Uh, yes. What he said was that he has determined that it would be possible for a very serious research group, NIDS, uh, here in the U.S., uh, sponsored by Bob Bigelow, who I'm going to have on the air next week for the first time ever on radio. Excellent. Yes, I'm, I'm very familiar with NIDS, and I've, I've spoken to Bob Bigelow and yes, Tom and, Kelleher. Indeed. As, uh, yes, and, and I had uh, Mr. Kelleher on uh, a couple of weeks ago, and he spoke about a ranch they have at an undisclosed location. We don't want to give it out. Sure. Uh, where some very unusual things occurred, and Ed Dames felt that one way to attract... Uh, or in, in, the, the way he put it, to set bait uh, would be to put a mother and an infant um, at a specific location on this ranch, and that there was something about the bonding, Ed Dame said, between the mother and an infant that would attract them. I, I think that's right. Now, NIDS are doing some excellent work, and in many ways, I think, are putting money into something which a lot of people think the government should be doing. However, I think we have to be very careful with the moral implications yes, oh of yes. uh, using that. Now, I'm sure NIDS will 
if, if they do do that ever, they will do it responsibly. But I think we need to be very careful about offering people as bait. Well, as a matter of fact, uh, in behalf of, of NIDS, um, uh, Colonel John Alexander called in during that program and said, you know, there was actually a mother and an infant on the ranch and they were removed because of perceived danger to them. That's excellent. I'm, I'm so glad to hear that. And, and that allies with everything I know about NIDS and how responsibly they handle that. Absolutely. That's good. Absolutely. So, so we, we need to establish open two-way conversation with, with the extraterrestrials. That's what we should really be aiming to do. But you agree, then, that uh, human relationships, the bonding is something they're apparently very interested in. They're very interested in it, and one reason may be because Boy. they can't do it themselves, or they're not good at it, or they've lost the ability to do it. It, it may be our very humanity, uh, what makes us individual, which is the most precious thing in the universe. Maybe far more so than we know, because, of course, to us it is a natural thing. Fascinating, fascinating. East of, east of the Rockies, without a lot of time, you're on the air with Nick Pope in London. Hello. Oh, hello there. This is Gary down in Hope Sound, Florida. Hi, Gary. Hi. Uh, yeah, my question is, I had, I, had missed, uh, I, I had a missing time thing in the early 70s when I went hunting one day. I lost a full day. But my question is, uh, I've noticed, looking back since then... Uh, Seems like I have a harder time. Uh, sleep. I, I seem to be more of a night owl since then. I uh, used to sleep very regular hours, and uh, my tendency is to uh, nap more during the day and uh, sleep less at night. Mm -hmm. And I wondered if that uh, has followed through. That's one question. Followed through with many of the people that have. Uh, missing time well if that's it, if yes a, a lot of people are perhaps subconsciously if they can't remember the details of what happened nervous um, that it may happen again so that that's one explanation yeah and my other question is uh, since you are on the inside of government it seems like the media pretty much controls the public's perception of everything and media I think on either side of the pond uh, is pretty cold when it comes to these topics uh, or very skeptical whenever they want to talk about any anything in this genre first thing they want to do is bring in somebody to debunk it all that's right and they call it in the interest of fairness mm. and uh, what do you th what, what do you perceive as being uh, uh, a way that this can finally start moving forward past this uh, debunking scenario. All right, what uh, can the public do to start? All right, we're so short on time that uh, it, it is a very good question. Nick, a response? Um, there are some good people coming through in the junior and middle ranks of the media who are more sympathetic than the current top dogs. Um, but also, I think the public should just keep pushing away. Lobby your representatives if you feel strongly about this. Build up a head of steam. Um, Nick, and, and I've got a question for you. Would a radio program like mine... And I'm on nearly 500 radio stations. Would it succeed in Great Britain? Oh, absolutely. Every time there's a TV or radio discussion program here in Britain, the phone lines are jammed. There is massive interest in this. All right. Uh, I'm glad to hear that. Nick, uh, boy, what an extraordinary visit this has been. I really want to thank you for coming on the air, but we are absolutely out of time. So I'm going to have you back sometime if you're willing. 
Absolutely. Great. I'd love that. All right, my friend. Thank you so very much, and, and good morning to you there. Thank you. Take care. That's Nick Pope. I'm Art Bell, and this is Coast to Coast AM Straight Ahead Open Lines. operator and have them dial 800-893-0903. That's 800-893-0903. This is Coast to Coast AM with Art Bell on the Premier Radio Networks. Good morning, everybody. Open lines, straight ahead. Whatever you want to talk about is fair game. get the chance, sit down and listen to the words of this whole song. Let me do a little promo coming up on Dreamland this Sunday. Hilly Rose is going to have the publisher of Magical Blend Magazine, who has compiled predictions for the new millennium from many very well-known personalities in the New Age metaphysical world. So, uh, note that. Coast to Coast, Monday night, again with Hilly. William J. Olson, who is an attorney, an expert in presidential abuses of power via the executive order. So that's what's directly ahead. Next week, on the uh, 27th, I'm going to have Robert Bigelow, uh, in his first national radio interview ever, and that's something you're not going to want to miss, he funds NIDS and a lot of other very special research, and he has an announcement that huh, I think is going to, I guess the right word would be electrify you. So you're not going to want to miss that. And a lot more. We're, we're going to have uh, Seth Shostak from SETI. He'll be here next week as well. And let me see. What else have I for you? I know there's one other thing that I'm missing, not thinking about. Yes, of course. Uh, Dr. David Jacobs, who wrote The Threat. He'll be here Thursday night, uh, Friday morning next week. Uh, we touched on uh, Dr. Jacobs' work briefly uh, during the program tonight. Now, let me hit you with a couple of things that are in the news here that are kind of interesting. Um, of course, the news is being dominated nationally by the uh, JFK tragedy. And, in fact, there are a lot of questions about the amount of news on this story. So I will not add to it. Um, it is a tragedy, and the Kennedy family has had to bear uh, certainly more than their fair share of them. Uh, from Baltimore, the Associated Press, a teenager who had half of her brain removed 
to stem the spread of deadly neurological disease was released today from Johns Hopkins Children's Center. I said released. Amber Ramirez was transferred to Mount Washington Pediatrics Hospital where she's going to begin physical and speech therapy to recover all the function she lost when surgeons removed the left half of her brain. It shows you how little we know about our own brains that literally half your brain tempting to make a Rush Limbaugh remark here but I won't half your brain gone uh, you could still as a human being function and uh, lead a useful life that's, that's forcing their husbands many for the first time in their lives to actually cook meals do laundry and wash dishes the 24-hour strike was arranged by the program for equal participation of women a Mexico City government uh, that's right government agency to draw attention to the fact that housewives and housework benefit